This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Both Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have been able to recover from the dark times of the housing bubble. But as we head into a new administration, it appears that the massive government-backed entities may be headed for a new future. Steve Mnuchin, President-elect Trump's nominee for Secretary of the Treasury, has talked about the two becoming privatized. It's part of a grander plan for deregulation across the board for the administration. But is it the right idea? Ben Keyes is associate professor, excuse me, assistant professor in the Wharton School uh, Department of Real Estate, as well as a faculty research fellow with the National Bureau of Economic Research. He joins us here in the studio and joining us on the phone, Chris Mayer, professor of real estate at Columbia University. Ben, nice to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you, Chris. Great to have you on the phone with us. Great to uh, be talking, Dan. Hey, Ben. Hi, Chris. How are you? Good. Most everyone really has kind of seen the impact that these two programs have had over the years, Ben. But but when did really the talk kind of get going about privatization of these two? Well, Fannie and Freddie were put into conservatorship in the, the worst period of 2008, uh, and they needed a bailout of about 100 and, uh, $187 billion uh, in total. Um, and as soon as that bailout was uh, was completed, uh, there was a uh, discussion that began in Washington about what the right right steps next steps would be for uh, for these two uh, these two government sponsored enterprises. Uh, and very early on, um, one of the proposals on the table was to try to uh, spin them off and privatize them as as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, at the other extreme, there were um, folks who advocated to make these uh, fully nationalized. So you had sort of two ends of the spectrum. Uh, in terms of what to do. And I think the discussion really uh, ramped up uh, around 2011 when the, the, the U.S. Treasury Department released their white paper mm-hmm. on, uh, on next steps for winding down uh, Fannie and Freddie. Would it be, in your mind, a move that, that would be going to full privatization, or would there still be some government, uh, government control of the programs along the way? Well, I think the the challenge is that it, when the when the market is healthy and and things are moving well, there's no piece of the of the mortgage process that necessarily needs the the role of government. Right. The homeowners can decide uh, what house to buy, how much money to put down. Uh, lenders can assess the risk of of that purchase, and those loans can be securitized, bundled together, securitized, and sold as bonds. And so, there's no piece of that that process that inherently requires. Uh, the government's role. The challenge is, what do you do when things go wrong? Right. And that's always the the challenge, and that's been the problem. Uh, if we want to get into the history of Fannie and Freddie, going back to to the Great Depression and why we needed um, these types of government programs in the first place. Well, so it's really a challenge about balancing out uh, through the business cycle. Right now, the the housing market is looking relatively good, yeah. um, and so the push to privatize is is a natural one. Um, but that's just like any insurance company that doesn't pay out. Uh, when times are good, it only pays out when times are bad. And so thinking about um, whether that insurance is correctly priced and, and whether or not there's going to be that support for the market when things go bad is the real question going forward. Chris, in your mind, is privatization the way to go? Well, I think that privatization absence a plan for what goes wrong when things are bad, as Ben said, is not really a solution. Um, it, it, 
it's nice theory to say, well, we'll just let them fail and go down. But as we've discovered in this financial crisis, and in fact, every government has discovered in every financial crisis, the government's not going to stand by and watch the housing market and the mortgage market completely collapse. Right. And the government's not going to stand by when the financial system implodes, um, or no well-functioning government will do that. So we need to have plans in place now for what happens when they have problems. If you look at the overall mortgage market, the U.S. government between Fannie and Freddie and also the work with the FHA, about 90% of all mortgages, and it fluctuates a little bit, that are being originated today are being originated by government-backed entities. So as we move this over to the private sector, you know, there's going to be a lot of concern about what risks taxpayers are getting. And if yeah. taxpayers aren't getting, you know, if there are capital rules and other things, then you know, taxpayers eventually will end up on the hook for large bailouts. Well, for a, for a lot of people that maybe are, are not as well-versed as you two gentlemen on this, uh, some people, and it, it crossed my mind uh, last night thinking about this, Chris, is the fact that you're talking about moving something that has had government control for such a long time into the hands of the private sector. Well, as we have seen, especially with the banking industry, sometimes putting control into the private sector doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work, and it could potentially lead to trouble down the way. Is that a possibility in your mind? Well, I mean, that's sort of what happened. I yeah. completely agree with you. So Fannie and Freddie um, have always been owned by private shareholders. In fact, they still have a private shareholder base, about 10% of the companies are owned by private shareholders today. Right. And so the problem has been what happens when you have an implicit or explicit government guarantee in private shareholders. The answer is private shareholders will take lots of risk and heads we win, tails taxpayers lose. So we've got to find a system that's better than that. The problem of privatizing at the moment is, in addition to the complications you talked about, those private shareholders have a very strong stake and have been spending a lot of time lobbying in Congress for what they're going to get paid out as part of this process. So it has created additional political complications above and beyond the normal conversation that we would be having right now. And kind of speaking of political complications, this is all going on as Mr. Mnuchin, uh, Ben, is now kind of in the news for some of the things that he may have been involved with at his time at One West Bank uh, with foreclosures and whether or not they were, you know, doing this in the right process. So this kind of, I mean, this is more the political end of it, but it does add a little context to what we're talking about here. Yeah, there's a very uh, troubling story, I would say, uh, out in the last couple of days. I think it was in The Intercept uh, that broke the story about um, uh, some backdating of paperwork um, and um, cases brought to the California Attorney General on uh, on the actions at One West. I think the um, one of the big challenges for, for Fannie and Freddie throughout this process has been how politicized uh, of a topic um, this is, and I think it's been, um, I, I think Chris would, would agree that it's been uh, largely misplaced in, in putting the blame on Fannie and Freddie for, right. for the, the broader housing crisis. Right. Um, from 2001 to 2005, they were losing market share while um, the private market was um, continually reducing standards, um, uh, underwriting standards. So I think um, this has been sort of um, tied up in a, in a swirling uh, political challenge, and there isn't a really easy solution because, as, as Chris mentioned, you have these shareholders on the side who are um, lobbying aggressively to, to effectively be, be made whole um, yeah. and 
get a, an enormous windfall payout. Um, and then you also have uh, the, the concerns at the other end for affordability programs and for right. uh, credit access. So a lot of the proposals out there talk about winding down the the government role or shifting away from the government role. And one of the most obvious ways to do that is to begin to tighten the restrictions in the uh, in the underwriting of, of the government programs and sort of hope that the private market will begin to to pop up uh, where the, the government loans have, have left. But if you look at the, the mix of loans that are out there right now, you're seeing a lot of people heavily reliant on the low down payment programs at yeah. the FHA and at Fannie and Freddie, yeah. um, putting down less than 5% in many cases. And so um, the, the real challenge here is, is thinking about these political trade-offs where you have uh, a group of investors who are, um, who are really banking on um, uh, a long shot uh, in terms of being those, the, the value of those shares uh, being made whole. Um, and at the other end, you have a lot of uh, consumer groups and others who really want to keep, uh, keep access to those um, low down payment programs to, to maintain some affordability as prices have, have really risen quite sharply since the, since the bottom. And, and still for a lot of people right now, Chris, those low down payment programs are, are, are very important to be able to get some houses sold. The interesting thing is that you know, Fannie and Freddie are doing a relatively small share of those. They've built okay. some programs recently that Ben is talking about, which I think are, you know, we will see how those develop. The bulk of low down payment lending is coming from the government. It's coming from FHA. Right. And so the concern about those programs is really, you know, you have the government in all different parts of this. And the question is, is what they're doing make sense? The challenge, though, is that while people can buy houses without large down payments, which, by the way, has been true historically, so you can go back to 2000, you know, the average down payment on a home today is not different than it's been historically. So there's some people who have a view, well, you know, the government is just pushing low down payment loans and we're going to redo the crisis again. That's that narrative is clearly false based on the data. But what has changed is that borrowers need to have much higher credit scores than they've had to have in the last 20 years yeah. to buy homes. And so, you know, estimates are there are probably a couple million people who would otherwise be homeowners now if we had historical credit standards. Again, I'm not talking about 2005. I'm talking about 2001 or 1998 or, you know, some periods back then. If we had historical norms for underwriting, we would see, you know, probably a couple more million more transactions and homeowners in the market today. And that's, you know, that is a problem and a remnant of the, you know, the political um, inaction that we've seen on the subject. If you have your way, Ben, what becomes of Fannie and Freddie in your mind? Well, uh, first, for starters, I I'm surely won't have my way. Um, okay, right. But, yes. uh, <laughs> I don't have that, that kind of power um, here at Wharton. But, um, you know, I think the, the, right, uh, the right goal here is to strike a balance. And I think that there's, as both Chris and I have mentioned, that there's, a, there's a, a way in which the private market can do quite a bit. But you need to have, uh, you need to have really clear and explicit um, procedures in place for when things turn. Um, the housing market can do quite well on its own uh, when when times are good, and so um, so I, I think the 
the most straightforward proposal that I've seen is is to sort of convert Fannie and Freddie into a, a form of catastrophe insurance, right? Um, with a with a larger footprint for sure than say a, a flood insurance program, but but something that would basically reinsure the the securities that are that are being issued, um, and that insurance could be could be priced um, uh, as as accurately as possible to reflect the underlying risk. Um, the challenge there is that that Fannie and Freddie have provided other uh, other things in addition to their to their insurance, and so they've um, provided access for affordable uh, affordable lending. Um, yeah. uh, they have a mandate to contribute to the National Housing Trust Fund. Um, they also provide uh, lending for uh, for multifamily housing, right. um, and at a time when uh, there's so much demand for for rental uh, property and rents are, are rising really sharply for low income households, we need to think about ways to. Um, to continue those pieces, so I think the the best case scenario is that um, we we accurately price the the catastrophe insurance, um, and that uh, consumers pay a premium for that, um, and then we find new and hopefully explicit ways to to support uh, low income and, and multifamily housing. Chris, I'm I'm on board with uh, with um, the uh, you know with where Ben is on this to a great extent. Um, I think where we have government programs that are supporting housing, as with government programs in any area, we should be explicit, we should budget for them, and we should decide that those are the goals we want. Um, you know, the housing is going to show up a lot in the issue. This is Fannie and Freddie is far from the only place. You know, we're going to have a big debate about mortgage interest deductibility and tax reform. Right. So I think we need to think about what's going on on the financing side in the context of the tax side of this. And there's going to be a lot of pressure on some of the implicit subsidies that are occurring through the tax code on housing. So I think as we get rid of some of those, which we should, or I hope, at least get rid of some at the high end of the market, yeah. um, that we think about how to encourage you know, home ownership. And this is the place where I think you know, maybe controversially, I will sort of say that if you look at people who are, you know, everybody talks about all the problems of the housing finance system, and the subsidies, et cetera, et cetera. The subsidies go almost predominantly at the top end of the market. The, you know, that is for high, high income, high tax rate people borrowing are the people who get the biggest benefit and people who, you know, who are buying homes with high tax rates. If you look at people in their 60s, in the current sort of group of the elderly, between 85 and 90 percent have owned a home, and the bulk of them own a home, you know, more than 80 percent own a home today. Home ownership is something that has helped almost everybody, but if those people were to not be homeowners and be renters, and have to face the challenges of paying rent and saving to pay rent over the next 20 years, 30 years, however long they're going to live, we would face very significant issues from a tax perspective as a country. So I think the government needs to find responsible ways to help people into home ownership because it's really a predominant way of building wealth and for the elderly to be able to manage their lives towards retirement. Well, and, and it's interesting, Chris, because of the fact that, that even though, you know, that we're seeing housing prices going up and, and, and interest rates have held, you know, pretty low over the last few years, you have a, a generation out there that is not as 
not as wanting in terms of buying properties, buying that first home in their mid to late 20s. They're waiting well into their 30s a lot of the, of the time, you know, to make that purchase. And it makes it interesting as to, you know, how this is going to really play out uh, for the for the real estate, real estate sector going forward. If we have this kind of philosophy with this generation, are we going to see that continue with the next generation, Chris? Right, so- I think that this is not a desire. I think it's a, it's about household circumstances. Okay. So I think there that comes from three things. The smallest is student debt, although you know yep. that's the most public. Yep. The second is people are marrying and forming households later. Yep. And that alone would push people into their mid thirties or later as home buyers because the average age of marriage and even the average age of kind of living together has become much later. Right. The third is the challenges of income in the middle. Yeah. So if you look at surveys, this generation does not say they want to own homes any less than previous generations do. You know, 80 to 90% of people say they aspire to home ownership. It's that their financial circumstances, their income, the challenges of middle-income workers are all combining to make it much harder. And I think we need to have a stable housing finance system that has a path to home ownership that people can save and become responsible homeowners. It's not arguing they need to be subsidized, but we do need a stable system to do that. And I think that is an important goal. I think that it should be a policy goal, not only of this government, but it has been for most governments. And as we think about this going forward, we want to do it in a way that protects taxpayers. Sure, yeah. And the previous system did a lot of that other than the protecting taxpayers part. Right, right. So we should find a way to keep the stability but better protect taxpayers. And that's something that's feasible to do and, in fact, is done in other countries. Canada is a great example of a country that does that and does not have a dissimilar homeownership rate to the United States, but does not have some of the craziness that we have in our system. Ben? I, I agree with, with Chris's point exactly. And on this point about um, later homeownership purchases, I really I, I agree that I think it's, a, it's largely a story of, of income um, and one about – um, both lower incomes. The unemployment rate among 20 to 24-year-olds is still over 8%. Yeah. So I think people are really, um, you know, under have underappreciated just how long uh, and persistent the impact of the Great Recession has been on, on younger households. Also, income is more volatile. And so when you're looking at a more volatile income stream, um, as Chris mentioned, you're going to need um, mechanisms to save, um, to smooth through the, that those fluctuations. People aren't getting a 30-year job at the factory anymore. They're bouncing from job to job. And so um, that kind of stability is, is more challenging um, uh, or lack of stability is more challenging in terms of saving for a down payment and um, possibly making uh, making steady uh, mortgage payments over time. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. In studio, Dan Loney along with Ben Keyes from the Wharton School and on the phone with Chris Mayer of uh, Columbia University. Your comments about the uh, the future of the uh, the housing sector and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone again, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Now, unfortunately, where we sit right now, like a lot of the things that are kind of playing out as the Trump administration starts to to get ready to move into the White House, we really don't know what the mindset is 
to a degree, about what they want to do with Fannie and Freddie. So from that perspective, all of these kind of ideas that we, we've we been talking about for the last 17 or 18 minutes are kind of up in the air, Ben, because of the fact that there is so much still kind of in the clouds and not known. Well, that's right. It's very easy to stand on the rooftop and, and shout privatize, uh, but yeah. there's actually a lot of logistical details and and real challenges with the transition. As I mentioned before, the, the, the most straightforward way to transition to a more private market is to sort of set very clear and bright boundaries of, of what types of loans will be uh, government supported and yeah. which are going to be falling to the private market. And then you gradually shift that boundary to sort of shrink the, the government's role. Um, and in the absence of that type of uh, really forward-looking guidance, um, the private market isn't going to step up. And we've there's been this ongoing discussion over the last five years, really, about when's the private market going to sort of pop back up. Right. Um, and that's really tied up in this challenge of, of the uncertainty around the, working out the details. And so I think uh, the challenge is to, 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 try to, um, to try to really wait and, and get a, a really concrete um, proposal on the table um, that's going to lay out those bright guidelines and then um, fix a timetable. And what's interesting is that the, the, the rules that, that were put in place for conservatorship um, basically assumed that, that this would happen. And so you're actually going to see Fannie and Freddie's capital buffer cut in half this year and huh. then down to zero in the following year um, as, uh, as there was an expectation that we would never reach this point, that these would be resolved uh, in uh, in some much shorter period of time, say around 2010 or 2011. And so um, and so there's going to be some, some real challenges there. I think one of the big um, challenges shifting to a privatized market is, as Chris and I have both been Discussing that this is these are so crucial to the housing market and the mortgage market. Yeah. These are deeply systemically important institutions, which means that they're going to have to have extremely high levels of of capital, and they're going to be subjected to stress tests. And so, uh, how do you um, how do you set aside that that cushion uh, for these firms and recapitalize them? And I think that's one of the big um, transition puzzles going forward. Um, so it would take some restraint on the part of Congress to set aside the money um, over potentially a period of years to recapitalize these firms or to give them some sort of capital injection or infusion. Right. Um, it was possible that that could partially come from the private market as well. Um, but that's one of the big uh, challenges with the transition going forward. Chris? I mean, I think that the issues have been raised. I'll add two other sort of challenges. One of them is for anything serious to happen with Fannie and Freddie, it's going to require legislation. The you know, what um, you know, Steve Mnuchin, the sort of you know nominated Treasury Secretary, has talked about, and I think you know others have talked about, is for the government to potentially stop skimming off the profits, which it's now doing. Um, that to you know to go into Treasury and to have those start to build up again within um, Fannie and Freddie. If right. that were to happen without legislative proposal of what to do, what it would do is eventually just build up more and more capital in the system. That would benefit you know both taxpayers but also private shareholders in the companies. So in the absence of legislation, what you're going to do is build up capital in the companies without a plan of what to do with it and what to do with the companies. And so I think that's a very bad idea to do absent other changes as well and absent a broader plan. And I think there would be a lot of, you know, the challenge in Congress is this is not an issue in which Republicans are anywhere near unified. There are at least three yep. camps 
in yeah. Congress, one of which is very concerned about these private shareholders and hedge funds who are going to get a big windfall from purchasing Fannie and Freddie shares, you know, well into the crisis and kind of stopping up the system. So there is not a, a unified view among Republicans of what to do. Um, there's not even a view between the Senate and the House. And Democrats also are, you know, this crosses party lines in terms of how people look at this problem. So there is a middle between Democrats and Republicans, which is, I think, where kind of Ben and I are. But it's not at all clear that that gets passed. And it's not at all clear, frankly, that, you know, if you're looking at the issues that Congress is facing, I just think that this stuff is all going to get pushed back longer unless there's something that forces it to the front. I was going to ask you where this kind of fell in the agenda, and obviously the tax reform is, is something, and, and uh, the Affordable Care Act is obviously two of the big ones that, that uh, the Trump administration are talking about. So this is something that that may take, what, a year or two for it to, to really start to get some teeth, correct, in your mind, Chris? Longer than that. Yeah. I mean, if we think what we are going to do, which is currently on the table, is we are going to rewrite our health care system, which in and of itself took a year of focus in Washington. Yep. And we're going to do major corporate tax reform and major individual tax reform. And we're going to have any shot at getting it right and negotiating these things. That's a, that's a two-year agenda itself in you know, Congress. Forget about all the other things that are going on. I just don't see how this rises to the level that we're going to see legislators really push the caveat to that is if the Secretary of Treasury and the administration does start to accumulate capital inside these companies, um, that will have budget implications because we could be talking about billions of dollars that are not flowing through to the Treasury and much more political pressure. So I think if that happens, that could force the issue to the table to get discussed. But short of that, it's just, you know, I think it, it's important to talk about this and you know we do need to get this right for the economy right but it's hard to think this was not an issue in the presidential race and presidents <laughs> typically and administrations typically focus in the first couple of years at least on the stuff they ran on chris That's, this wasn't it chris thanks very much for joining us today ben sure. as well thank you very much for coming in yeah thanks for having Gr me greatly appreciate it chris mayer from uh, columbia university ben keys here from the wharton school for more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.